from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this Mother's Day weekend, and happy Mother's Day to many of you. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Illinois farmers smash records for their soybean planting pace, but what about Iowa? The last two years for me, I haven't started or planted hardly any corn till around May 10th. From dryness to recent rains, we'll hit the fields for a look at the wild weather impacting planting this year. Like mother, like daughter, how these fierce females are blazing their own trails. I think I was 15 when I signed my first lease. A female farmer who's only 16 as we're celebrating women of agriculture. A major blow to the livestock industry with a Supreme Court ruling on California's Prop 12. We have details. And in John's world. Simpler cars, more car companies. Now for the news, a major loss for not just the pork industry, but the entire livestock industry, with the Supreme Court upholding California's Proposition 12. California's law, which was passed by voters in 2018, requires more space for breeding pigs. Producers argue it would force the $26 billion a year industry to change its practices, even though pork is produced almost entirely outside California. Now, the high court rejecting an industry challenge that the state is violating the Constitution by regulating commerce outside its borders. One lawyer telling us that many pork producers say if required to change their operations based on this Prop 12, they may simply decide to quit. But others will do it for a price. I've talked to producers that say, well, I don't want to do it, but I'll sure take a look at what I can do to comply as long as I can be compensated for that in the marketplace. Farmers and market analysts were watching WASD as USDA released a new supply and demand report at the end of the week, giving us an updated look at old crop ending stocks and a look ahead at this year's crop going in the ground right now. Well, this coming is no surprise to trade and analysts. USDA projecting record soybean and corn yields this year. But the May WASDE report is the first look at the new crop balance sheets. Demand for new crop continues to be an area of concern. USDA forecasting new crop corn stocks at 15.3 billion bushels, up 10% from last year. That's on larger production, but also increase in feed usage. With the recent cancellations from China, USDA also cut old crop corn exports by 75 million bushels. USDA also forecasting higher soybean balance sheets. Those are up 5% at 4.51 billion bushels. USDA saying higher supplies, higher crush and ending stocks, but lower exports played into their decision. But drought playing a role in the revisions to the wheat production estimate. Despite the big jump in planted acres, USDA pegging the crop at 1.659 billion bushels. That's only slightly higher than this year's 1.65 billion bushels. And the market's responding positively to that. We'll have more market reaction with our analysts coming up. Well, warmer and drier weather is aiding planting progress across the country. USDA says we're nearing the halfway mark when it comes to getting the corn crop planted, now 49% planted across the country. That's seven percentage points ahead of the five-year average. Missouri is way ahead with 92% of the crop planted. That is quicker than the pace of 2012. And planting finally getting underway in North Dakota with 1% planted. As for soybeans, 35% is now in the ground. That's 14 percentage points ahead of average. Lynn Martz telling us they've finished planting both corn and soybeans, but that's not the case countywide. Dry weather in northern Illinois as well as seed treatments is helping farmers plant soybeans so quickly in Illinois this year. And so now we're more picky about 
planting corn than we are beans, especially when we were going through all of that cold, cold, cold temperatures. And uh, we didn't want to put that corn plant, you know, corn seed through that. So that's probably why why beans are ahead of corn. Well, this was also the first week that NAS gave the national snapshot of pasture and range conditions. 68% of Nebraska's pasture and range is rated poor to very poor. But look at Kansas. It now has the worst condition ratings in state's history with 64% in the poor to very poor category. Just as Title 42 expired this week, a record number of migrants crossed the southern border. New policy is aimed to set tougher deportation standards as those along the border to describe the situation right now as chaos. The policy put into place in 2020 to curb the spread of COVID-19 gave the U.S. government the power to swiftly expel migrants at the southern border. Days ahead of the policy expiring, the number of migrants waiting to cross surged, challenging a humanitarian crisis that is already unfolding there. The government estimating there were more than 150,000 migrants waiting at shelters and on the streets in Mexican states that bordered the U.S., the president bringing in 1,500 troops to try and handle the influx. Well, thousands of ghost cattle, millions of dollars in lost money and a suicide, all part of a massive fraud cattle scheme under investigation in Kentucky. Drovers reporting on this, they say the scheme involving 52-year-old Brian McClain of Benton dates back six years. A source telling them McLean guaranteed investors of his cattle operations a 30% return on investment. Over time, McLean's cattle inventory grew and some investors did see hefty profits, but it's alleged those investors were paid with more borrowed money. McLean's lender, Robbo, says in April his cattle inventory on paper reached 88,000 head. Robbo agri-finance officials then ordered an inventory check and found only about 10,000 head. It's reported McLean committed suicide in April and the cattle were sold. It's estimated that dozens of investors, along with Robbo Agrofinance, lost $100 million. And livestock producers, Zoetis and Farm Journal, want to recognize you and the impact you have on feeding our communities. The Zoetis Freedom Recognition Sweepstakes by Farm Journal runs through Saturday, May 27th. Register to win a special edition golf bag or the grand prize, an amazing American flag wall display that we will be giving away on air. Just scan the QR code on your screen and you'll be taken to the sweepstakes entry form to enter for your chance to win. That's it for the news. Warmer weather bringing severe storms this week. We will have a check of your weather forecast next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Maximize baleage yield with less time and effort with the LW1100 line wrap bale wrapper. You can wrap round or square bales and the automatic operating mode allows for a one person operation. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joins us this weekend. Andrew, a massive warm up this past week, but it did bring some severe weather to some of our viewers. But those rains hasn't been enough to eat away at the drought. Tyne, let's take a minute here and go throughout the estimated rainfall from radar over the past week here. And we're going to zoom on in. Notice where we get some of these yellows and oranges. That's an indication of again some decent rainfall amounts. But notice where we're kind of lacking that rainfall. Well, it's right across to parts of the central plains. And that's where we're really missing the heart of the moisture. And this is the area that we really need the water and unfortunately mother nature just hasn't been delivering much this spring and in fact much of the winter as well. Much of Nebraska and Kansas has really been left out here. Updated root zone showing those reds, those deeper pockets of reds there. Again, that's the indication of some very dry soils and the latest drought monitor 
Still showing an exceptional drought, which hasn't moved much at all. And in fact, we've seen it raise about a percent across parts of the central plains. And it looks like going forward, we're not going to see much in the way over the course of the next 10 days. We're going to keep a disturbance off to the south. That's going to keep Texas, parts of southern Oklahoma saturated. Meanwhile, again, the heart of the plains, which we really need the moisture. Mother Nature's got other plans for us. Unfortunately, it's going to skip us as we go throughout mid-May. And we'll also see some of those greens showing up as well up across the parts of the Great Lakes states as well as up into the Carolinas. Notice how parts of the Carolinas we get some of those oranges and red showing up. That's an indication of two to four inches of water that could likely fall from in and out of shower and thunderstorm chances. Checking out the precipitation outlook here as we go throughout the mid month of May. Notice how we keep those browns. That's the drier than normal temperatures that are in at least a drier than normal rainfall as well. That's going to keep the plain states, the northern half of the plain states and the southern plain states rather on the drier side. And notice how we get those greens showing up as well down across the southern plains and west coast. I'll keep those areas a little bit more on the wetter side. And going up almost to the end of May now, we're going to continue with that drier spell to the north and that wetter pattern setting up further off towards the south. Let's dive on into the jet stream. Notice how there's a lot of red on the menu. We've had a lot of above average temperatures for this past week. And as we go into next week, we're going to see this upper level ridge building off to the west. And this is really going to get the heat going for the second half of the country. And whenever you see a big ridge building off to the west, well, that usually means a cool down for parts of the Great Lakes and East Coast and New England coastline. Notice that little dip, that trough beginning to develop up across the northeastern parts there of the U.S. That'll keep those folks a little bit on the cooler side as we go on into mid-May. It looks like we'll have to wait until mid-May for the Great Lakes and East Coast to warm back up again with temperatures back above average. Tyne? Thanks, Andrew. Well, weather continuing to impact the market, but Friday was USDA report day. So what surprises did this month's WASD hold? We have Joe Vaklovic and Matt Bennett joining us next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Joe Vaklovic as well as Matt Bennett joining us this weekend. Friday report from USDA. Joe and Matt, everyone dreads them, but here we are. Let's digest these numbers. Joe, looking at new crop balance sheets. That really is what everyone was watching. Was there a surprise to you on Friday? It's not surprising to me. The thing you've got to remember about the new crop balance sheet is that everything in all of the new crop balance sheets is contingent on weather. USDA is assuming normal or favorable weather in regard to crop production. So you look at this corn yield estimate, 181.5. You look at a soybean yield estimate for the U.S., 52. Did you see the new crop uh, South American production estimates? 163 million metric ton uh, Brazilian soybean crop. That's what's being projected. But for any of those things to be achieved, you need weather to cooperate in the United States and in South America. So that's the one thing to be aware of. I mean, this is just a starting point, but nobody can predict the weather. Therefore, you can't predict the yields. Therefore, Therefore, you can't predict the balance sheets. This is a starting point is what it is. Matt, did USDA make any adjustments that were larger than what agmarket.net was expecting heading into the report? I mean, slightly. I guess we thought exports would go down 50 million bushels. They went down 75. That's certainly an understandable thing to do. I mean, they've got the fuel to do something like that, but you carry that old crop into new crop, you know, and you come up with a 2222, which was actually lower than what we thought. And the reason that we thought it would be higher than that is because we knew, as Joe suggested, you know, that they're assuming normal weather, assuming all the acres get planted. So we knew they were going to use 92. We knew they were 
going to use 181.5, but, you know, they also had some pretty bold demand assumptions, which, you know, should come to pass if we continue on the trajectory that we've seen uh, with cheaper corn prices. So with that big demand uh, uh, increase that kept your carryout at a, a 22.22, which I'm telling you, it could have been worse than that if they would have used those big production numbers, uh, you know, and, and use, I guess, demand numbers that were a little closer to what we saw this year, because they're not too far from increasing a billion bushels on demand. Yeah, you just said it. Big assumptions when it came to demand. Joe, you said it. Big assumptions when it comes to supply. Yeah. How is the market reacting to that news on Friday? Uh, a lot of this, uh, some of it, appears to have been discounted into the marketplace. And this is going to look different maybe by some by the time some of you guys watch this. But, I mean, the old crop corn market was trading higher following the report. Uh, new crop was lower and did make some fresh lows. So kind of a mixed reaction. It, it could have been a heck of a lot worse. I mean, going into this, we knew looking at the corn numbers especially that we were going to see some pretty bearish stuff. And we got some pretty bearish stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's not a good look. But I don't know that any of it was really shocking either. Matt, but I talked to Ken Ferry this week, and he was talking about how much of the Illinois soybean crop was planted early and how kind of that pre-flowering solstice, what that means. And he's looking for possibly some big soybean yields out of Illinois. Other states are the same. So is it possible that we do see some of these record crops that USDA is assuming right now? I mean, it's, it's certainly possible. It's early in the year to make too many assumptions. But, you know, whenever you go look at some of these folks talking weather, you know, we had uh, Eric Snodgrass on our uh, fundamental uh, webinar this week, and he was just talking about the fact that it sure seems to him that the the best chance, if you will, for uh, normal weather is, is probably uh, – you know, we're going to have a really good shot, I guess, at El Nino taking over to the point where he felt like, you know, we could be looking at trend line or, or better uh, yields. Corn uh, is, is what I'm talking about here, but Ferry's talking about uh, soybean yields. Here's the thing. The bean crop went in the ground early, but they didn't come up right off the bat, quite frankly. So, you know, I, I do think that you've got a chance to have a lot of beans flowering by the time you get around to your, you know, your longest day there in June. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's still fairly early. I mean, the crop is going to be made later on in the year. Yes, the table is going to be set. I do feel like the weather is going to cooperate better than what it has the last couple of years, just based upon this El Nino situation. But at the same time, it's awfully early to make too many assumptions. Joe, you mentioned it. It all hinges on weather. But is there anything in this report that you feel like USDA may be missing? Um, not necessarily. I mean, people, again, people make assumptions about the demand and say, oh, maybe they're they're too high or too generous with the corn demand number. They've got corn increasing, corn demand increasing by 755 million bushels year over year. But at the same time, you look at the uh, average farm price expected, 660 old crop versus 480 new crop. When you get a price shift, if it's realized, of course, of that magnitude, yeah, you should see more demand. And if you don't see more demand and that sort of price shift, you've got yourself a serious, serious problem. Well, wheat taking into consideration the drought, we need to talk about wheat. Plus, we'll get into cattle. We'll do that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, the term EVs for electric vehicles is so 2022. At least that's what John says. John looks at the new term and what could soon shake up the auto industry in John's world this week. A long time ago, when my grandmother was a girl growing up in my hometown, it boasted its very own car company, the Rayfield. This was not unusual. From 1900 to 1919, they were about 2,000 companies in the United States making cars at some time or another. The reason was simple. 
Cars were simple. The name of America's first car manufacturing company, the Duryea Motor Wagon Company, suggests how straightforward the technology was. There were few parts beyond the ability of a good machinist and contemporary machinery tools, machine tools. Something similar may be happening with EVs. One quick note, from now on, I'm going to try to refer to battery-powered vehicles as BEVs. It's becoming the standard, standard acronym to differentiate between hybrids and cars with no internal combustion engine, ICE. We may be about to duplicate the economic conditions that allow for small companies to compete with dominant auto behemoths like Toyota or GM. BEVs are comparatively simple to build, with estimates varying up to 85% fewer parts. When considering the powertrain alone, the number of components comparison is even more stark. The bodies and interiors are wildly different, but BEV chassis are, a simply, are essentially comprised of a battery, a controller, and a motor. Consequently, the technology threshold and manufacturing machinery are less prohibitive to new entrants. Starting with Tesla, of course, there are dozens of BEV startups like Bollinger, Atlas, Fisker, Canoe, Arrival, Aptera, and many more, especially in China, the largest manufacturers of BEVs. Many, if not most, of these startups will fail, but their sheer number will chip away at the dominance of major car companies. This industry disruption will also present an opportunity to re-examine what I consider one of the most questionable regulations in the U.S., after the Jones Act, of course. I am talking about state laws forbidding direct sales by manufacturers to consumers. The dealer's sales laws may have had an important purpose at one time, but technology has a way of finding alternatives. Deploying increasingly sophisticated and powerful websites to sell simpler machines, BEV car companies will challenge not just established car makers, but the need for arguably outdated regulations. Thanks, John. Well, have you ever seen a tractor with a wooden cab? Leave it to Machine Repeat to find one. That's in the Lone Star State next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on Earth. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we are again headed to the great state of Texas to check out a 1934 Case L. And this one has a very special cab. Well, this is a 1934 Model L Case tractor. This tractor has 40 horsepower. This was used mainly in drain farming, things of that cetera. The cost of this tractor in 1930 was $1,350. It has a factory cab on it, which is, you'll notice, all wood. That would be pretty hot condition in the summertime because there wasn't no air conditioner or fans of any type. Naturally, when the elements, and particularly out here where it's pretty bad winters and hot summers, it was definitely accepted very well in the winter conditions because before that you sat out in the bare open. I remember as a kid driving tractors without a cab and you had on so many clothes you couldn't hardly move. But this was a, quite a breakthrough. 
The markets seem to be taking note of how quickly much of the corn and soybean crop is being planted across the country. And farmers in states like Illinois aren't just a little ahead. They are smashing records when it comes to soybeans. But how are the other I states doing when it comes to planting this year? Michelle Rupp hits the fields next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, not every state is smashing records this year, but there are a few. Dryness is also aiding progress for soybeans. Eight states are still planting in record time when it comes to soybeans across the country. But check out Illinois. 66% of the state's soybeans are already in the ground. The average, only 28%. Well, that's Illinois, but what about the other I states as well as other states in the Midwest? Michelle Rook hits the fields this weekend to see what unique circumstances farmers are seeing this year. It was a cold start to the planting season here in Iowa, but with a break in the weather, farmers have been going full steam and progress is ahead of average. Planting progress in Iowa is at 70% on corn, nearly 50% on soybeans. Iowa farmer Kevin Ross says April was cold with soil temperatures below 50 degrees, so he didn't get started planting corn until the first week in May. But it's going well, and he's within his normal planting window. The last two years for me, I haven't started or planted hardly any corn until around May 10th. Um, we've hammered it in pretty quick right after that and that, you know, warm temps and, uh, you know, at that point you're guaranteed warm temps and that corn just pops right out and gets moving. So haven't felt like we've been very far behind with that. With the cool soils, though, up until last week, Ross is actually farther ahead on soybean planting versus corn. Tried to knock in a bunch of the beans, if not all of them right away. And um, it's just turned out it's been working well for us from a yield standpoint. In fact, he says they've been some of his best beans on his farm. Last year we were in, you know, 60 to 70 bushel, which for us around here is really good. Year before that we were in the 70 to 80 range, which is exceptional for our area. While it isn't showing up yet on the drought monitor, Ross says southwestern Iowa is still dry and could use some more rain. I don't get worried about, um, you know, about drought too much in the, you know, April, May time frame. But if we miss, you know, a lot of April, May rains, then all of a sudden I'm, you know, very concerned going into the June, July portion of the growing season. So. Um, we we got to have something in the tank when we start hitting those uh, the hit or miss times for us. But he's not overly worried yet since the last two seasons have been dry in his area and he turned out with above average yields. Yeah, corn yields last year for us was the second best year we've, that I had around here. Um, we ended up, you know, in the mid twos on, on almost everything. Uh, just ended up with a really, really good corn yield. And, and like I said, bean yield, it wasn't disappointed at all either. So um, the last couple of years have been a couple of the best years yield wise that I've ever had. Uh, so hopefully we can keep that up. Ross applied his fertilizer last fall, but farmers that did not in Iowa and along the northern Mississippi River had difficulty getting product when the river shut down due to flooding as it had to move by rail. The good news is that the locks are starting to open and barge traffic is resuming as the river crested earlier than forecast. We're exiting in most of these locations the major flood stage uh, designation and, and in moving into moderate flood stage or even minor flood stage. And, and that, you know, certainly is 
beneficial to the communities that are adjacent to the river for barge transportation that's beneficial. He says as a result, the Army Corps of Engineers has announced the locks on the upper Mississippi River that have been closed due to high water levels have opened or will reopen later this week. What we're seeing is a number of these locks that the Army Corps of Engineers had to close for a period of time due to the high water levels, they're able to reopen those. Many of them have already been reopened and we, we anticipate seeing the balance of those reopened in the next two to three days. So seeing that whole system, that upper Mississippi River system, roughly from Minneapolis, St. Paul, all the way to St. Louis being fully operational, which is good news. Steenuk says while the lot closures slowed fertilizer movement, soybean exports were largely unaffected as the volume is modest right now compared to harvest season. For U.S. Farm Report, I'm Michelle Rook. Thanks, Michelle. Well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of crop supply concerns right now in the U.S. At least that's what prices are telling us in the markets. But there are concerns about demand. We'll get into that a little more with Matt Bennett and Joe Vaklovic next. Matt Bennett and Joe Vaklovic rejoining us. Matt, coming up this next week, we have Kansas wheat that will go on the, the wheat tour, get an idea of, of how good or how poor conditions are. But you look at some of these adjustments USDA made to wheat. I mean, talk about drought impacting. Despite the increase in seedings, we saw USDA really not change much when it comes to the new crop balance sheets. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit surprising. I mean, certainly I'm out in that part of the world as uh, I'm talking to you here and uh, definitely major issues, uh, Nebraska, Kansas. Uh, uh, there's there's definitely going to be some uh, problems, in my opinion, whenever it comes to production. You talk to uh, growers that say, you know, they haven't had a rain in three years, which is kind of an exaggeration. But again, uh, to be honest, it really isn't. I mean, it, it's just a pretty tough uh, sailing. So I guess from my vantage point, they're maybe a little bit rich in their assumptions on what the wheat crop might look like. In fact, I do think there could be a little more abandonment than what they're uh, uh, suggesting. So I think moving forward, this wheat crop uh, tour is going to be very interesting. It'd be one of those years, uh, some years, I guess people don't pay very close attention. I think this is one of them we should be watching maybe a little bit closer. We're also watching that deadline for the Black Sea grain deal, and we know that can be a market mover. But Joe, right now, what are some things that you're watching heading into this next week as those negotiations continue to take place? Uh, real quick, I'll mention the the HRW wheat estimate for HRW specifically, uh, the crop estimate was like 75 million bushels below the average trade guess. That was actually one of the bigger surprises in the report. I know it shouldn't be a shock that the wheat crop in Kansas is no good, but it's all about expectations versus reality, of course. Uh, going home for the weekend, there was not really any fresh news about the grain deal. They're still talking. Russia says that they're not happy with uh, what's been presented to them. I would imagine coming into next week, uh, you'll see some news come Sunday or Monday. Is it good news or bad news? I don't know. I just don't know if the Black Sea grain deal is, is the make-all, be-all that it used to be. It used to really move markets, those headlines. Now it just seems like it doesn't. Well, speaking of demand, let's get into the cattle market because where you are, I know you're out at Kansas State for your son Bo's graduation. Congratulations to him. But in those areas, you look at pasture and range conditions, they are not great. So question mark, will we see more cow culling? But at the same time, are we seeing some demand impacts just from, from prices and, and inflation? What is the battle right now in the cattle markets, though, Matt? Yeah, I feel like uh, overall, you've had a very wary investor. You know, I've actually talked with Joe on his show a couple of times about this. Uh, whereas on some days, whenever the corn market's really struggling here lately, which has been more days than not, uh, 
some of the cattle buyers, I guess, uh, as far as the board's concerned, haven't been as excited as what we thought they might be. And so, you know, you're entering into a time when demand's going to be awfully strong. Grilling season's certainly coming. We know that cattle numbers are going to continue to dwindle. Uh, but whenever I look at, you know, are we going to see a lot of cow calling? I think that you're still going to see some some folks are healing up. I was in Nebraska yesterday and, you know, parts of the uh, Nebraska are finally getting some rain uh, that have really needed it. Obviously super excited about that for those folks, but you know, there's still just way too many people that aren't getting the rain. So overall, fundamentally, this market is the best looking ag market in my opinion that we have, uh, but you're still going to need the equities to hold together. You're still going to need consumer confidence to hold together. And if you get those things to happen, I think even brighter days are ahead for this cattle market. Joe, real quick. Do you agree with that? Yeah, uh, cattle market, live cattle, feeder cattle, probably the strongest commodities bar none that I track. I mean, you look at the other sectors, grains, I mean, energies, uh, precious metals have been okay. But the cattle market is, has really been able to kind of buck the trend of lower commodity prices. If you look at any of the commodity indexes, you look at the Bloomberg index, you look at the Goldman index, they've been trending lower and lower and lower for a year now. And uh, the cattle market's been able to uh, impressively buck that trend. The fundamentals are absolutely there. My fear would be something in the outside markets. We, we had some issues in cattle when the, when the banks were blowing up. Um, we, we've had some issues when there's like recession risks pop up again. So there's still that, that outside risk that money doesn't want to be associated with long commodity positions. But the fundamental story is great. All right. Well, happy Mother's Day to Manisa. Happy Mother's Day to Tiffany. Thank you both for being on. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Chinese cancellations again. Well, we head back to Illinois this weekend for customer support from John's Farm. John? I had a sense of deja vu when I read this email. I would like to know how we allow contracts for grain purchases to be canceled by buyers, especially China. Can you explain why they can do this and I can't? That's from Scott Summerfield in Munger, Michigan. I thought I had answered almost the same question a couple of years ago. Turns out it was 2017, and here is what I said. Well, Tracy, the short answer to the question about how does China get away with this is because they can. And it turns out that may be the long answer, too. When you are by far the biggest buyer of commodities in the world, you can kind of play by your own rules. Keep in mind, too, that global forces to police such agreements, like the WTO, World Trade Organization, are now out of political favor. Should the U.S. pull out of such trading organizations, we would have even less power to seek redress for broken promises. I asked the public relations people at a big grain merchandiser about how cancellations work and received a very polite and very vague answer. There don't seem to be any firm rules, at least that are publicly shared. One thing they did note was shipping companies are the ones who are currently taking the biggest hit, and carriers are starting to fold those costs into prices for cargo to China, as well as trying to include some damage clauses in their contracts. But shipping is in an even greater surplus than corn or soybeans right now, so even global cargo carriers have little leverage. Reading between the lines, however, this is my guess, and I do mean guess. When commodities are tight due to production problems or robust demand, grain merchandisers remember being stiff uh, by customers like China. I would expect what goes around comes around applies to international grain trading as well. 
Since I said that, the concept of free trade has been proven to have some serious problems. Supporters, like me, overestimated the ability of national economies to adjust to foreign competition without serious social and economic difficulties. International enforcement of contracts is another, since agreement on remedial actions seems unlikely. Obviously, we've been here before. Maybe we should just remember that sales to China should be considered a bonus, not a reliable demand. Well, impressive women in agriculture, but what about farming at the age of 16? It's one female farmer that we feature to kick off Women of Ag next. Times Women of Ag is brought to you by John Deere, who celebrates the strength and resilience of the women who make farms run. According to the latest ag census, there were 1.2 million female producers, which accounts for 36% of the total number of producers in the U.S. USDA says those female producers are slightly younger and more likely to be a beginning farmer. But travel the countryside during planting or harvest, and it's often rare that you see a female behind the wheel of a tractor or combine and planting or in harvest. That's not the case for one Iowa family. We travel to Atlantic, Iowa this weekend to kick off our new series highlighting women of ag. I don't really remember a point that I was not on the farm. At 16 years old, it didn't take Callie Pellet long to learn her calling in life. I think that I was just kind of always out there. Um, I definitely started going out there a lot when I was like five or six. Even at a young age, it was hard to pull her out of the combine because farming is right where she wanted to be. She has been daddy's girl from day one. You know, when, when Mike would be ready to leave for the farm, she was boots on and probably out the door before he was. With the support of her parents and grandparents, Callie took a big leap a little over a year ago. I think I was 15 when I signed my first lease. And today, she has nearly 20 acres she farms on her own. I make the decision on, first of all, what crop I'm going to do. I do my own anhydrous, I do my own planting, I do my own harvesting. Decisions that she's learned how to make by farming alongside her dad. I definitely use his um, expertise because I'm not an agronomist and haven't gone to school for that yet. Kelly will admit some lessons in the field have been harder than others. I made the decision this year. He wouldn't give me any help on what size rows I wanted my beans to be. I asked him and he said, you make the decision. And she did the decision to plant 20 inch rows this year. Learning by doing means Callie's dream of being a farmer is well underway. And if you ask Callie's mom what she thinks, it's really no surprise. She's really taken it upon herself to not just say, mom and dad, what do I do? But to see that drive in her to say, I, I want to do this, and then be willing to do the work to learn and, and earn it. No matter if it's volleyball, softball, or track season, or if she's showing cattle for FFA, Callie has a lot on her plate, yet she's still drawn to the farm, even when she's not supposed to be. And I said, hey, can you run um, dinner to dad? And she said, sure. And she has softball practice. She has to be at the field at 5.45 in the morning. And I said, don't be out late, a little after nine, I called her and I'm like, where are you? She's like, mom, I'm planting. <laughs> and I said, Callie, she's like, I know, but I'm on my last round. I'll be there soon. Callie has some great examples. She comes from a long line of fierce females, but not female farmers. There's 14 in Pellcorp. So that's our uh, corporation that we farm with. And how many of those are female? Just me and my mom. Last fall, Callie clocked 107 hours in the field. That's in the middle of all of her sports. And the way the pellets farm is set up, all 14 farm together, 
but each family member owns their own ground. And all of this belongs to their separate equipment corporation. And then we bill each member of the family for their acres. And we have a per acre fee for planting and a per acre fee for harvest. And that fee covers the ability to use the equipment on your farm. It covers the insurance, the fuel, the maintenance. Whoever works in the field, they then get a credit for those hours to offset their equipment bill. Just like everybody else gets credit for her 107 hours was applied to her bill. It was more than her bill for the harvest charges. So that credit carries over to this spring and will help cover her expenses for this spring. And there's also a lot Callie is learning from her mom. Stacy has a lot of titles on any given day. Her full-time job is with John Deere, managing state public affairs in the Midwest and Northwest. But when she's not meeting with legislators or doing jobs around the farm. Go, Cart, go get it now, baby. You'll often find her at her kids' sporting events. Well, my favorite title of all of them is mom, of course, and I think probably any mom would say that, but that is by far my favorite title. Stacy and Mike also have a son, Carter, who's preparing to graduate high school this month. His comment would be, I'm probably gonna farm because that's what all pellet men do. And that's what he just says. But in reality, the farm has always been Callie's thing. Some may view it as the roles are reversed, but Stacy knew this is where Carter really wanted to be. When he was this big, he played with tractors, but by the time he was this big, he had a ball in his hand and it, that he's never changed that. Carter may not have plans to come back home and farm right now, but as Stacy knows, sometimes life has other plans. I had a list, I will never, uh, leave Texas. I will never marry a farmer. I, I, there's a lot more on there and I've done every last one of them. Stacy's raising her kids to value work ethic while also pursuing their passion. And both Stacy and Mike know each day on the farm is one full of lessons. Sometimes helping her to understand that it's not always easy. We're helping her understand that it's not always gonna be $7 corn and $14 beans. Callie is finishing up her junior year of high school, but she knows life's lessons extend beyond the classroom or farming the land. Many have come from her mom. There's a lot of lessons that she's taught me. I think that a big thing that she's taught me is balancing everything and making your priorities a thing. Even at the ripe age of 16, being the seventh generation of this Iowa family farm is something Callie doesn't take for granted. Not all kids get this opportunity and get the opportunity to learn alongside multiple generations, so that's really cool. She plans to attend either Iowa State or Kansas State after graduating next year. And then when I'm done with school, I'll come back here and I'll farm. Carter will attend Iowa State in the fall and not major in agriculture. But walking on this farm, you'll quickly see both kids may have their own passion, but both are kind, charismatic, and driven to succeed. Uh, unbelievably proud because as a parent, all you care about is building something that you can hand off to them, right? And we did. I love that Carter has his own thing and that we can celebrate him being unbelievably successful. It's something other than this. As for Callie, she admits she's a daddy's girl and she knows no matter the hurdle at hand, she can overcome it. Something she's steadily seen watching her mother's way. Well, we had so much fun with the pellets earlier this week and we are excited to continue this Women of Ag series throughout the year. So do you know an impressive woman in agriculture we should feature? Well, then we want your help. We'll tell you details of how you can submit those next. Well, we just met two great examples of strong women in agriculture and this Mother's Day weekend, we also wanted to take the time to celebrate some more fierce females who are also moms. 
And I just so happen to have the pleasure of working with these amazing women as they're part of the Farm Journal family. Here at Farm Journal, we are so fortunate to work with several strong women who juggle their busy workload while also making sure their priority of being a mom remains at the top. Now these women are so supportive, but they're also some of the most brilliant individuals I've ever met. I mean, their insight, their vision, dedication, and passion for agriculture is something I admire about each and every one of these ladies. And as you can see, most raise livestock or also live on their family's farm, which is what helps them be so in tune with agriculture today. They live it, they breathe it, because farming isn't just what we report on, it's also who we are and what we do. And this Mother's Day, we wanted to take the time to highlight these wonderful women in ag who are often behind the scenes. And many of you may know a strong woman in ag, and we want to hear about them. Throughout the year, we are teaming up with John Deere to feature several female farmers, also those women who work in the agriculture field, as we continue our Women in Ag series. So if you know someone that we should visit, let us know. Just email us at mailbag at usfarmreport.com, or you can also send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. We would love to hear your ideas. That does it for U.S. Farm Report this Mother's Day weekend. Happy Mother's Day to many of you, and thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.